Welcome to episode 75 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Call blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we are just going to be answering a variety of questions that we've sourced um, from everywhere. Some people uh, tweeted us on the hashtag AskPubCrawl. Some of these are just general questions that are pretty common or that our friends have asked us in person or, you know, just general question and answer session from us today. Yeah. Um, some of these are not exactly for, um, writers at the beginning of their publishing journey. Some of the, some of these questions are for people who already have an agent are on submission or already have a book contract. So some of these are not necessarily going to be applicable for everybody, but, um, you know, we do try and answer questions as best we can. And especially as like, once you're actually in the weeds of publishing, sometimes it's hard to find a lot of answers about the industry when you're in it. It's a lot of, it's a lot easier to find information. Sometimes I think about how to get into publishing than like what to do when these various scenarios come up mm-hmm. in publishing. So, uh, some of these we have received, as we said, like either in person or in a smaller setting, kind of face to face rather than like something sent into us because it's often easier to explain things in person. But we try to distill these down to sort of general questions that we can answer for some people. So, um, why don't we actually start with the general publishing questions that we kind of get? Yeah. And these are. These are actually for, um, these are common questions that I get when there are authors on sub or submission for their first book, or even like people who are querying. Um, but the question I got was, what does it mean when an editor, editor or agent follows you on Twitter? (laughs) Oh, um, just don't drive yourself off the deep end with this question. Um, there is no rhyme or reason to it. It could be because they're interested in your work. It could be because you write really great tweets. It could be because someone else in their feed retweeted you and they just followed you. It it could be any number of reasons. Um, don't read too much into it. I know it's tempting because it is so, the process is so opaque and we, we know that, but I mean, these Twitter accounts for agents and editors, social media can be weird in that it's often a mix of personal and professional, but for the most part, most people in publishing use their uh, Twitter account really as kind of a personal Twitter. Uh, they are affiliated with whoever they work for, of course, but the personal Twitter is just that. They followed you because they thought you were funny, or they thought you had something interesting to say, or what have you. I mean, yeah. there are many, many reasons. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Um, on the editorial side, I will say this. As an editor, I was... All the authors I followed, I followed because I actually met a lot of them. Mm. Um, I met, you know, because being in New York and, and at book events and things, even if I 
didn't work on these authors' books, if I met them at an event, then generally I'd follow them because it was kind of this personal connection we'd made. Um, sometimes it's easier or... Um, like, if I got a submission from an agent and I recognized the author's name, then I'd be like, oh, yeah, I remember meeting them. But it doesn't actually mean much, to be completely honest. Um, yeah, don't, don't, I know it's tempting, but just don't go there. You yeah. will save yourself a lot of headache. Yeah, don't do it. Resist. Resist the urge. And it's also like, even if you do want uh, even if the editor is following you and does want to acquire your book, there is actually no guarantee that they can. Because, I mean, I know I've bought a multiple projects to Ed Board and been unable to per- buy, the, buy them because mm-hmm. the editorial board just didn't get on board. So that is what happens. So until you actually get an offer in writing, nothing is nothing, mm-hmm. you know. So there is that. <laughs> um, yeah. The other questions we had, so this one was um, a little bit more specific, but is, should you have a number in mind, and they they meant monetary number mm. in mind, when you go on submission? I think that really depends on what stage of your career you're in. Uh, I think that it's always a good idea to talk with your agent about where they see your book fitting into the marketplace and try to kind of check in and and have some realistic conversations about what the money in publishing actually looks like. Uh, But I think for debuts, it's really hard to, to find a number range and stick there. You know, I think a lot of things happen, um, and change and, and, and it's hard to predict for debut authors what that advance range will be. I think that if you are publishing your second or third or fourth book, you should have expectations for what your advance amounts would be because you're trying to grow your career. So you would, you know, hopefully think that your next advance will be larger than the advance before and so on and so forth. So in that sense, I think, yes, you should have a number in mind. Um, but I think for debuts, it's hard. I think you should have conversations with your agent and talk about that sort of a thing. But I think to go in as a debut author and say, I'm going to accept this and nothing less is hard to do and I wouldn't advise that for debuts I would agree um it it is a very unpredictable business in terms of money because it it doesn't I mean the the amount of an advance doesn't necessarily mean anything (laughs) about either the quality or even sometimes the inherent commercial value of the book so I don't think it's I don't think going in with a set number in mind if your debut is useful. But I will say there are some numbers, concrete numbers, that you can talk to your agent about. For example, in the event of a preempt, what is the minimum or what is, you know, what is what is the amount you will accept if it's a preempt, right? Um, because an off, as we've mentioned before in a, in a previous podcast, preempts are often given 
uh, by a publishing house if they want to grab the project and take it off the table. Um, preempts, you know, are neither good nor bad, uh, but it's, it is that question of what would you accept in a preempt and what do you think the gamble would be if you go to auction, essentially. So that is something I would talk to your agent and have specific concrete numbers for. Like, okay, if the preempt comes in at this figure, then sure, we'll accept it. But if the preempt comes in and below that, then maybe we'll talk about whether or not we go to auction or something like that. I think that that is useful, but to say I'm going to get this for my debut and nothing else is... You just can't predict that kind of a thing. Um, I do think you should have candid talks with your agent, too, about what a typical advance is. And I know it's harder for some people than not, but I also think that you should have a candid discussion about the perceived size of your book. Quieter books tend to get less money, and when we talk about quiet books, it really just means it's, I mean, simply put, it just means it's not a commercial novel. But that doesn't mean it's not quality, of course. But a quieter book that's not inherently commercially written or doesn't have a commercial premise, they don't tend to go for a ton of money. And if your book is that, uh, is quieter, you know, historical or contemporary or more literary novel, then I think you should talk to your agent about what they expect and who they're going out to. Um, I think if you have a more commercial project, that's a little bit different. But I, I do think having context for where your book is in the market as a whole helps with a lot of potential disappointments further down the road. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything else to add about the money question? No, I think that pretty much covers it. I mean, like I said, it's hard, and I hate talking in generalities because it doesn't help anyone. But you know, as I said, I'll do a postmortem on Witcher Song in a while um, and give you guys the first year's worth of numbers, more or less. But like, I do think that it, one of these days. I mean, it's obviously like I can only talk about my own deal and I can't talk about other people's deals even though I know the numbers mm -hmm. but this lack of transparency I know it bothers a lot of people and it kind of bothers me too but I you know it's not also, it's also not my place to disclose, disclose that kind of information right. no, it's of not course mine not. of course not so okay um, did you have a couple of questions about submission that you wanted to get answered? Yeah, so um, a question that came to me was um, when you get your submission list from your agent um, about who your book is going to be sent out to, um, if you notice that one of the names on that list, one of the editors has recently made a deal, if you're following you know, deal announcements from um, trade publications, and you see, oh, we're submitting to Editor X, but yesterday Editor X just announced, you know, this huge acquisition. Does that mean that this is a wasted submission? Um, and truthfully, there are so many different factors in the way that books are bought that what is announced today 
doesn't really have any bearing on what's going on submission tomorrow, in part because, you know, a lot of the deals that are being announced right now are books that were submitted, you know, six months ago, eight months ago. A lot of times before the deal announcement, um, the publishers oftentimes like to get through contract negotiations before a deal is announced so that in case anything falls through and the deal doesn't happen, they haven't announced this, idea, this deal that's going nowhere. Um, and contract negotiations can take a long time. So we might be announcing this deal now, but you know, actually this has been a process that's been months in the making. And the catalog that this book is going to appear in is probably not the same catalog that books going forward that are being submitted now would be in. So if a deal was just announced for a book that's going to be published in, you know, f fall 2018 and or spring 2018 and we're going on submission, you know, in a couple weeks with another project, that's probably not going to be a 2018 book. That's going to be a 2019 book or even a 2020 book, depending. Mm -hmm. And so that editor that has that one slot full is going to have a whole new open roster for the following catalogs in the following years. So it, like because time travel and publishing is so weird, like the you can't think of those you know, don't, don't think of, oh, this was just announced. And so therefore that person is never going to acquire this book. It doesn't work that way. There's catalogs that editors have to fill. Um, they have a certain number of books that they need to put in, in each catalog. There's three catalogs a year, you know, editors acquire years in advance. Um, so it's just a matter of the way that all plays out. Yeah. The thing about the announcement is that often you may agree to a deal and then you are unable to announce it until months later. That has is currently happening to me. So <laughs> I can't project. announce anything. Secret project. Secret project that I've been talking about, you know, um, can't announce it yet. Uh, partially because we've been asked not to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it, this is pretty common. And I think... The you know, I would say that if the editor that you're on sub submission to bought and announced a book that is incredibly similar to yours, yes, then I might be like, hmm. And I have done that as an agent. I have had an editor on a submission list before we've sent the book out, and I'm putting my list together of who I want to send to, and then I open up, you know, publisher's lunch one day, and there's a deal announcement for the book that sounds so close to the book that I was going to send to them, I'm going to take them off the list because right. the projects are so similar. Um, but if it, if they had just acquired a book that had nothing to do with the book that I was going to submit, then I would submit to them anyway. So it's really just about yeah. content. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think obviously editors acquire according to their taste. So, you know, it, it might suck a little bit that this editor that would have probably liked your project bought one that's similar to your project. Um, and But the way books get acquired and also scheduled <laughs> just means that it doesn't matter necessarily, mm -hmm. you know, what they announce. Only that if it's similar to your project, then maybe it would be kind of iffy. But, like, and by similar, I mean, like, the premise is pretty much identical to yours, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your books will be identical right. at all. It just means that the premise is really close. And so if they just bought a book that's like that, then 
when, for example, if I bought a book that's about a young girl who goes to, I don't know, a school for musicians or whatever, and I get another book and I just buy that one, and then I get another book in that's about a girl that goes to a school for musicians, even if the story is entirely different. For example, say one is paranormal and one is historical. Even if that's different, it's still it's just too close for me to acquire both projects. Um, because it's not just me. It's just everybody else in editorial board would be like, didn't you just buy a book just like this? Yeah. Why do you need two? Um, and then you would have to p- literally play favorites because mm-hmm. you can't put those two books in the same catalog. Because they would compete with each other. You know, you would have a book, you know, this is a book about a girl's good, girl who goes to music school and say that goes into the fall fall 2018 catalog. You can't put the other book in the fall 2018 catalog. You have to put the book, uh, you know, you have to have enough dif- distance. So maybe it would be summer 2019 catalog or, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's this weird thing where you're trying to space things apart so it's not all bunched together and, um, and, Editors, anyway, do look at publishing announcements because they're also looking be like, I just bought this, and if they see an announcement for another house and another editor has acquired projects similar to their, similar to mine, then I have to figure out, okay, what season do I want to publish my book in? Do I want to get ahead of this editor? Do I, you know, it's, it's that kind of a weird calculation, so it really doesn't matter. Yeah. People acquire year-round, and they schedule year-round, so... Mm, that's true. <laughs> Are there um, any other submission questions, or should we move on to our next... So, not particularly submission questions, but this is, I guess, um, more... This is also publishing-related, but this is after people have had representation or deals. The first one is, how do you leave your agent? Hmm... Um, I guess the unasked question is why right? would you leave your agent as well? <laughs> well how do you know it's time? How do you know it's time? Well, let's address the how first because that's a little bit more concrete. Um, the first thing I would suggest you do before you leave your agent is just to have a very frank conversation with them about what your concerns are and why you're unhappy because agents are not mind readers and a lot of them, um, if it's if it's something you know, that can be changed and then you would be happy with the relationship, then give them the opportunity to change that and, you know, see if you can work it out. Sometimes it's not, sometimes, you know, the agent could do everything right and it's still not a good business relationship and you still want to get out even after you have that frank conversation. So, you know, if you've clearly expressed your concerns and are still interested in leaving your agent, um, you should tell them, that you want to leave them in writing, usually. Um, Your agency agreement might have some, you know, language about how to facilitate the ending of that agreement. Some agency agreements have, um, are, they go in, um, I'm blanking on what the word is. Um, They go in like years, like it's, you renew for a year and then at the end Mm, of that year mm -hmm. you can, so you have a renewal period, there you go. So some agency agreements have renewal periods and you can't officially break up with your agent until that renewal period comes. Um, 
that's standard and fine, but make sure you, your renewal period is a year and not like 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, always read your contracts. That's my, that's my spiel. Um, so it might be, you have to wait until your renewal period, at which case usually if it's a larger agency, someone else would handle your day-to-day stuff, or you can kind of unofficially say like, let's just stop working and ride this out. And when my renewal period comes up, I'll sign with someone else. Um, But a lot of agency agreements are at will, which means the moment that you say, I don't want to work with you anymore, that is the end of the business relationship. What you should do at that point in time, so inform your agent in writing, have a frank conversation, inform your agent in writing, and then um, ask your agent for all the relevant information that you're going to need going forward. If your book has been on submission but hasn't sold, get the list of the editors that it went to and who's seen it so that when you have new representation, you can provide that information to your new agent. Um, you know, if Also the- what their response was. If they didn't respond, then you're going to have to withdraw your submission. Yep. Yep. It's usually, you know, yeah, you can have your agent withdraw the submission or you can withdraw the submission yourself. Um, but don't leave that in limbo, have a clean break. Um, be aware that, you know, if your agent did sell a book for you, they're still going to be entitled to that commission, even after your business relationship with them is over. So they'll still get a cut of your royalties. Or, you know, if you have advance amounts that are still owed to you, they'll still get their commission on the work that they have already done on your behalf, even if you are no longer in a relationship. Um, So, yeah, you know, those are, those are kind of the steps. It should be pretty simple. Again, read your agency agreements to make sure that you're not locked into something, uh, sinister, (laughs) um, you know, but most reputable agencies have perfectly fine agreements. Most of them are either at will or a one year renewal period. Um, so yeah. And then as for why to leave your agent or how, you know, when it's time, um, you're really the only person who can decide what you're comfortable with, what, you know, one person's comfort with a communication volume. Like if one person could be fine with an agent who only checks in once a month and another person is like, no, I want weekly updates or, you know, you are the only one who can decide what it is that you need out of that relationship. Um, it's important that you're on the same page in terms of your, career path and your plans. It's important that you feel that your agent, um, understands your work and respects your wishes. Um, it's important that you both feel that you can be honest with one another and can speak up when things make you uncomfortable or there's something that you don't agree with. So at that very basic level, if those things aren't there for whatever reason, um, then maybe it's time to move on. Um, it can also be clash of personality. It can also be that your agent can't sell your book, even though they love it. You know, there's lots of things that could be reasons to leave and only, you know, what those reasons are. Um, but I think that the most important things are to make your expectations clear out of what you want from your agent relationship and to communicate openly with your agent so that they can do their best to meet your expectations. Yeah, I think there, I mean, obviously you don't necessarily know all these things when you sign with an agent and that's okay. People change agents all the time in -hmm. this industry. And if they're not 
most of these are amicable partings as well. Yeah. You know, it's just like it just it's. I mean, it's it's like a relationship, like any kind of relationship. Even though business and money is on the line, you know, sometimes you just don't. You, or you grow apart. That's something that often happens too. Like uh, your agent is more focused on this type of book, and you know maybe your first couple of books were in that sort of genre or vein, but you've evolved as a writer, and you know your agent doesn't quite know where to place you anymore. That that can happen, you know, mm-hmm. over the course of a long career, where an agent's like, I don't really know where or how to help you get published. You know that can happen, or. Um, maybe you want a more aggressive agent because, you know, a lot of agents tend to sort of, it, it depends because some agents will late, will let their authors take the lead in terms of what they want. And mm-hmm. then other agents are very much like, this is the plan. This is what we're going to do. And some people want that kind of handholding and some people don't. And, you know, so a lot of these things you don't necessarily know until you're actually in the relationship. And then it find then you sort of find out over a, period of time that it's not working Mm -hmm. so as you know how you know when it's time to leave it's all up to you and the personal circumstances there are plenty of people in the in the business who are on their second third some even fourth or fifth agents Mm -hmm. and it happens and for like i said for the most part it's amicable Mm -hmm. it's very rare that an agent and an author will part on bad terms Mm -hmm. yep I will say, formerly, formally end your relationship with your current agent before pursuing new representation. Do yes, not, I mean you would start, break up with yeah. the you you would yeah. break up with a significant other before you start pursuing a relationship with someone else. Yes, I, otherwise I, it's called cheating. <laughs> yeah, you'd think this would be obvious, but some people not so obvious. Um, I have received emails, you know, from people who've queered me and said, I do currently have representation, but I'm not happy and I want to find someone else. And I'm like, I cannot help you. (laughs) Even if I love your work, I, sorry, you get your situation sorted out first and, you know, I'm not going to be the agent homewrecker. (laughs) No, no. Um, so yeah, so that's all I have to say about that. Okay, so the last kind of publishing-related question is, how do you cancel a book contract, and what happens? Mm. So, in your contract, there's going to be a clause or language about the rights of termination. And this language should include things like the publisher's rights of termination, like when Simon & Schuster canceled uh, Milo's book uh, and that blew up and is currently in the middle of a lawsuit mess. Um, And then there's author's rights of termination, where the author is the one who decides they no longer want to be part of the contract. Your book contract should include um, a path for both things, for both parties to get out of the contract. Uh, if it doesn't, if it's one-sided and it only includes public publisher termination language, don't sign that contract. Um, hmm. There should be clear ways for you to be able to end the agreement. Most of the time, that means that you are going to have to return every cent of the advance if you're the person who ends the agreement. There are exceptions, of course, because there's exceptions to everything. But for general purposes, if you decide, I don't want to be part of this 
publishing agreement anymore. I can't write the book or I don't like my editor or I, you know, have decided to give up writing and become, you know, a hermit, whatever your reason is, if you decide you don't want to hold up your contractual obligations, you're going to have to repay any money that was paid to you. Um, so that's for sure. Um, the publisher will not return the rights to your book until you pay them back in full. Um, so you won't be able to do anything else with that property until you've repaid the advance. Um, you know, there's other things that, that can happen depending on the situation, depending on the language. Um, you know, it, it's all pretty different, but basically, you know, you would talk to your agent and you would say, I want out. Um, this is the kind of thing that I would, I would utilize the agent for. I would not as the author, email my editor and be like, I want to cancel my contract. Talk to your agent and let your agent handle it. It's a business thing and it's a messy thing and they should be the one to go in and, and, you know, write an official, uh, official intent to cancel or whatever. Um, and oftentimes you'll have to sign uh, something stating that the agreement has been canceled. Um, other times they consider the monetary transaction, you know, the agreement. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, basically you would talk to your agent. You would say, I can't do this for X, Y, Z reasons. Um, and then you'd pay all the money back, all of it. Even the cut that went to your agent. Yep. So, um... This obviously this is not a decision to be made lightly, but I, you know, if if this is something that you are thinking about, then you know this is what happens. If the publisher cancels your contract, um, it is also a little bit different. In mm -hmm. that instance, I don't believe you have to return the advance. No, nine times out of ten, you get to keep whatever was paid to you to that mm -hmm. point, and sometimes even get an additional sum for a kill fee. Yes, so. But when you initiate the cancellation, you do have to return the money. I mean, it makes sense, right? They've advanced mm -hmm. you the funds with the intent to publish your book. But mm -hmm. if they cancel, then it's sort of like, well, we advanced you the funds. But yeah. this is... this is you Yeah. Know. And you can't get out of it either by just not upholding your end of the bargain. Like, you can't say, well, I don't want to cancel because I don't want to pay the money back, so I'll just never turn in the book. That that would also be in breach of contract if you just sat on your manuscript and never turned it into your editor. Eventually, um, you would trigger a breach in contract and you'd still have to pay the money back. So it's not something that you can circumvent or avoid. Um, you know, either you're willfully refusing to fulfill your obligations or you're saying, I do not want to fulfill my obligations. You know, pay, here's your money. Release me from the agreement. It can be, I mean, the way things get paid back can be a little bit different if you have, for example, a multi-book contract. Mm -hmm. Because usually when you get paid for a multi-book deal, you get paid on signing for all the books. So, for example, let's say you sold a three-book series, you get, we'll, we'll, say, and we'll say the payments in thirds, right? So it's third on signing, third on delivery and acceptance, third on publication. So... You sold a three book series and you get a third for each for, on book. signing for each book. Upfront, yeah. Upfront. So, for example, in your three book contract, say you've published the first book but have not published the other two, then you would have to return the signing portion 
of books two and three because um, you probably wouldn't have been paid yet for the DNA or for the publication of books two and three. But you have been paid for the public DNA and publication of book one, but that is yours since that part of that contract mm-hmm. has been fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So um, it can get a little bit tricky in that way, but basically any book that isn't been published, like if you haven't delivered a manuscript, you have to return the DNA yep. and the signing. Um if you've delivered and accepted a manuscript, if you've delivered a manuscript and it's been accepted, that's actually kind of interesting. If you've delivered a manu- delivered a manuscript and it's been accepted, but you decide to cancel it before pub, what would happen? Oh, that would ultimately that's going to be the publisher's call um, because at that point you've delivered them the manuscript and they've accepted it which is contractually you know final that's now theirs to go forward and and publish I think nine times out of ten if you went to a publisher at that point and said don't publish this book I want out they would at least be open to talking with you about it because nobody wants the author to negatively campaign against the book (laughs) like if they publish it anyway against your wishes and you go out there and you're like I didn't want them to publish this I hate this book I hate that you know that's just negative publicity that's not going to help anybody it's not going to generate sales you know it's just not going to be a good situation so I think publishers would at least come to the table and listen but they could go ahead and publish anyway and I actually know of a situation where that happened where the author tried to pull the book and the publisher said no and they went ahead and published it anyway and the author did storm across social media and was very upset about it and vocally upset about it but but it happened so you did give them the right to publish it so mm-hmm. that's what you did when you signed the contract yep. um, but I'm sh- yeah it's I mean that is it can happen, obviously, and it has happened, but I'm sure everyone yeah. it's in everyone's vested interest. That's pretty late in the game because you've already revised. Yeah. You've already, you know, uh, that I, I would be, it, it's difficult, I, I think, to, to not realize sooner in the process that you don't want to move forward. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously it happens or at least has happened once. Um, but, you know, I think most times you'll know earlier in the process if, it's something that you don't want to move forward with. Yeah. Okay, so um, this is a more of an author-related question and not a publishing one, which was, how do you be a good moderator on a panel? This is such a good question. So I have moderated a panel. I was a moderator on a panel for Y'all West. Um, and... It can honestly it can honestly depend on the festival that you're going to and the panel that you are on. Um, but what I did, I, I unfortunately did not have time to read everyone's book who was on the panel with me. I think there were seven of us. Um, luckily, I had read most of them before I was the moderator of the panel, so I had a pretty good sense. And I think the actual title of the panel was fictional fantasy journeys I think it was like fantasy journeys so I kind of had a sense of and so I 
before the panel, I sat down and I wrote a couple of questions that I wanted to ask. Now, <laughs> this is actually where the podcast came in useful because I'm, you know, I'm used to now to like trying to get a conversation going about a topic so I can kind of probe and like mm. guide things in different directions. But if you, if that makes you nervous or if you're not comfortable speaking on the fly, then I would definitely have a list of questions to write down. Um, depends on how long your panel is. Um, most panels probably are generally around an hour, so try and fill about 45 minutes of time with everybody talking and um, leave maybe about 10 to 15 minutes at the end for the audience to answer questions is generally how we do it. And at least I find that 45 minutes goes pretty quickly. So, uh, But 45 minutes, depending on how many panelists you have and how willing they are to talk because some of them just don't want to, um, I would say anywhere from five to ten questions if you can think about them beforehand. And obviously, you know, you don't have to stick to this script because if, if the conversation starts going in different places, then, you know, I, I went up there with a notepad and a pen just to scribble things down as people were talking so I didn't want to forget if I wanted to go back to a point somebody else brought up. Um, other things that... I mean, I was fairly lucky on my panel because we were all ladies, <laughs> mm. and a good chunk of us were ladies of color. So, but I, I do think you should be conscious also of the makeup of your panel, mm -hmm. and try and get everyone to speak equally. So make make sure that the women get a chance to speak, that the people of color get a chance to speak, that the uh, that other that you know your queer authors and your disabled authors get a chance to speak. Obviously, it's not going to be perfect. You're not going to sit there with a stopwatch and like time everyone's response. Right. But the longer you are on a panel, the more you start to understand people's kind of dynamic and chemistry on panel. And there are some people that suck all of the air out of the room. Mm -hmm. I have been there, and I've been on panels, and I always appreciate it when there's a moderator there who kind of curbs that person and says, mm -hmm. well, okay, that's great. Why don't we hear from blank? Right. You know, that's literally all you have to say. You wait for that person to finish their thought, and then you kind of cut in and say, thank you. What about so-and-so? What, what are their thoughts? What do you think? Um, mm -hmm. And I tried to be good on my panel because there were a couple who didn't like to talk, who were obviously kind of shy, but I didn't want them to just sit there and, you not know, not yeah. actually, yeah, not participate. So I, you know, asked them questions and I'd be like, okay, what about you? And if they were clearly uncomfortable, I would try and give them a little bit of a softball question to just kind of be like, it's, you know, you don't have to be a eloquent or whatever. I am comfortable on a panel though. So, and I know not everybody is. And honestly, if you are really anxious about moderating, I think maybe talk to the festival organizer or the conference organizer and say, look, I am flattered that you asked, but I don't know if I'll be able to perform my duties as necessary. And that's fine too. Mm -hmm. Just make sure you do it with enough time that they can find another moderator for the panel that you're supposed to be doing. So... That's my advice. I don't know if you have anything else. No, I when I I teach at the Loft Literary Center, and um, the Loft has started a program for its teaching artists um, about creating anti-racist classrooms. Um, and so I've been attending some of those things, and a couple of the conversations have been led by David Mira, who is an Asian American um, author here in Minnesota, and he has really been working with us on the point that you mentioned about making sure that um, people of color on the panel are speaking 
an equal, you know, times to white people or that women are speaking, you know, equally to men because it is, that doesn't happen because some of us tend to just keep talking and take over the conversation and all voices aren't equally heard. And so, um, yeah, that, that's just something I think that is important and, and that's really a moderator's job. Your job really is to control the conversation. Um, yeah, that really, yeah, I can't really stress that enough. You're not, I mean, obviously you want to participate as a moderator in the discussion yourself, but you really are supposed to guide the, the course of conversation. There are panels that I've attended and seen where the moderator just didn't direct conversation at all. And so one person spoke the entire time. And then also that one person said really, really kind of offensive things. And you can see everyone in the room and on the panel just get very uncomfortable. And, you know, I don't, I mean, obviously, I don't know what the moderator situation was, but if that were me on the panel, I would have probably said something. I would have been like, okay, that's an interesting point of view. At least, like, that's a very neutral thing to say, too. Like, mm-hmm. that's an interesting that's an interesting point of view. Why don't we hear from and yep. just pivot to somebody else? Yep. Um, not everybody, it's, you do not necessarily have to call them out on their terrible words, although some, you can, if that mm-hmm. is, if you are up for it. <laughs> yep. Sometimes letting people's own words just hang there for a minute is effective. For themselves. (laughs) Yeah, it can. They can. They start to uh, build their own rope, basically, with which to hang themselves. So, but like I said, if these sorts of things happen, often just try and listen for a spot where you can interject and say, okay, that's great. You know, or just Mm -hmm. like, okay, that's an interesting thought. Let's move on. Or Mm -hmm. why don't we ask blah, blah, blah. You just kind of stick your finger in there and just kind of be like, okay, moving on. Yep. That's kind of the best way to steer conversation. So, all right. Then um, we did get a question on Twitter. Yes. If you want to read that, Kelly. Sure. That question is from Megan Hendrick at MyHendrick. Can you translate visual elements from TV comics to books, i.e. clues in the back, jarring music and changes, etc.? If so, how? So I think when I first read this conversation and I saw um, clues in the back, I thought she meant like clues in the back of the book. But you were saying that you think she's talking more about, like, in the background of a visual, of, like, TV yeah. or film, the information that you get that's on screen, but is not necessarily the focal point. Which makes a yeah. lot more sense than randomly putting mystery clues in the back of your book for whatever reason. I'm, I think you have to be conscious of the fact that visual mediums and novels are just two different mediums. I mean, it really is. I... It's why adaptations of books to movies or books to TV shows are different Mm -hmm. than um, often the source material. And in my opinion, for a good reason, because there are things you can do in a visual medium that you can't do in a book. You can convey a lot more information without actually any any dialogue whatsoever. Um, But there are also things that you can do in a novel that you cannot do in a book. You can get into someone's 
point of view. And the thing that a novel can do extraordinarily well that a movie has a little bit more difficulty doing is the unreliable narrator. The narrator that is purposely withholding bits of information. I mean, there are movies that do do this pretty well. I would think The Usual Suspects Mm. um, or Mm. uh, The Sixth Sense or, um, you know, any sort of movie that has a twist like that or even like Memento or something. Mm. But, um, you know, so there are interesting narrative tricks you can do in a movie. But the interiority of a character is really what a novel excels at. You can get really at the nuance of what a character is thinking and feeling and responding to external cues in the environment but if there are things that you need the reader to know but not necessarily your protagonist to know that is a little trickier you know like how do you convey information in the background like a small thing and to be honest you just write about it the way you would write about any other setting detail yeah I mean, you, it can be done. J.K. Rowling was always really great at this. Mm-hmm. She would plant little things that seem innocuous in her books, and then later on they would come to be something huge. You know, I think Sirius Black is first mentioned in book one in a throwaway line, and then he comes back later in a huge way. Um, even the Ravenclaw diadem is, like, mentioned in a scene, or the locket. You know, there's mm-hmm. all kinds of things, like creatures, like, sneaking the locket away, and that's how they know in book seven that it hasn't really been destroyed. Like, there's just all of these things that she was very good at planting things in a subtle way and then bringing them back. Um, so it is possible. You can do it. You can mention an object, you know, in the background and then come back to it. Um, I do think it's hard to do it well because you want to make it a strong enough mention that the reader remembers it when it comes back later, but not so strong that it's obvious that you're trying to direct reader attention to it. So, you know, it requires some finesse, but it's definitely possible. I I do think that if you're going to do it, you treat that detail you need to plant with the same weight as any other setting detail. Yeah. You know, so if you're describing sensations of a place and you know somebody is in a space and they're observing what's going on around them you plant that information in there along with all of the other sensory detail that they're getting in that moment um so it's there and they've noticed it even if their conscious mind hasn't put a spotlight on it mm-hmm. it's still there in in the background more yeah. or less yeah but tonal shifts the way that can be indicated via Music, often music cues or edit cues or lighting cues often that you see in a movie or even on stage. Um, mm-hmm. Those are, I think, a lot harder because that is the one thing about a book. It, a tonal shift is really hard to do yeah, purposefully because most people will kind of read that and go, well, that's a hot mess. <laughs> like, um I think there there are subtle ways to do it in that if you have like a multi-narrator book, you know, then you can have tonal shifts with each narrator. And that's a little bit less jarring than that sort of like all of a sudden, like the next chapter is just totally different. Like here's a dark mystery in one chapter and then here is a lighthearted romp in the next chapter. It's kind of weird in that way. Um, but I do think there needs to be a cohesive tone to the book as a whole. But I do think if you have separate narrators, their distinct voices can shift mm-hmm. uh, the tone a little bit back and forth. So it's not quite one flat tone across mm-hmm. the whole book. But 
Um, that is a voice thing, though. That's um, yeah. That's again, if even if it's in third person, it's what they observe about people. It's how they interact with the world around them. It's not just the way they talk. That is an aspect of voice, but it is literally three-dimensional. Voice is a three-dimensional thing for a character. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's it. We don't have any other questions that we can answer this week. All right. So, what are we working on? Submission stuff. <laughs> I'm hoping to go out early September, so I've been pretty geared on that. And then I have another client manuscript I've got to edit, so pretty much the same stuff as always. I am prepping for my Loft Literary class, which is coming up very soon in October. So, yeah, just the same stuff I've been working on most of the month. You? Same. Mm-hmm. My deadline is in middle of September. Mm. So... Um, well, that's kind of the deadline I've kind of set for myself. Um, it's really the end of September. It needs to be polished up. But, like, uh, yeah. So I am writing my face off. And it, the thing about revision is um, it's a pretty substantial revision that I'm doing in, insofar as I'm basically rewriting it with the words already there, but I'm rewriting the story and streamlining it. And... <laughs> But the further you go along in the story, the bigger the changes start to get. Uh It's like, it's just, I'm just like facing down the end of my book, being like, oh God, this is going to be so much work. I have to do in two weeks. Ah! Ah!" Um, So yeah, that's what I have right now. And that's what I've been working on. Wow. Almost the end of August. Have you read anything? I am almost done with a new book for me, new to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep, I am reading um, Empress of a Thousand Skies by Rhoda Belza. Oh, yay! Yeah. I'm really it's enjoying it. It's science fiction, right? Mm-hmm. Science fiction? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yay! Yeah. I like it. It's good. I, I did. I was like, I have to get a book in this month. And it's, you know, it's been really wonderful because it does feel different than reading requested materials and... um not to say that those aren't well-crafted books or, you know, anything about the quality, but it's just having, having a book that's been published, it feels, it's a different part of my brain. It's like not work brain. I'm just reading this for pleasure and it's great. So I missed that. And I'm hoping that now that I've kind of broken the seal, we will uh, be reading a lot more. I hope. I have not read a physical book, but I have downloaded for um, listening to kind of either running errands or doing other things around my house. I had like three unused Audible credits because <laughs> I hadn't been reading um, anything. So I decided I was going to listen to Carrie Elwes's. It's not necessarily oh, a memoir. I heard it's good. Uh, what on earth is it called? It's about... It's, Isn't it's it just As like You Wish? It might be As You Wish, I think. Um, but it's basically just stories from his time on set uh, doing filming The Princess Bride. So I was super excited to um, listen to that. And it's I only just started it. And it's nice because they are like anecdotes. Mm-hmm. So it's not like a, a whole narrative I have to listen to. Um, but it's extremely charming. He's very charming. The stories he tells are just really just charming. Like, they're not 
anything deep or revelatory or but it it gives me the same feeling that watching the princess bride does which is that like it's just nice and charming and fun so that's um that's what i've been listening to and then yep nothing else i mean like i said until book two is turned in i got Mm -hmm. nothing i got nothing (laughs) I fully intend to read a lot once my book is finally turned in, but oh, until yeah. then, nope. Um, any off many recommendations? Yes, I have a new podcast. Mm. Um, the podcast Secret Feminist Agenda by Hannah McGregor. Hannah is the co-host of one of my other favorite podcasts, Which Please, which is <laughs> about the Harry Potter world. And I'm obsessed with that podcast. And so Hannah uh, branched off on her own to add a second podcast project called Secret Feminist Agenda, where she just interviews um, women. And it's just great. And they talk about... Um, feminism and social justice and racism and self-care and um, astrology and eyeliner and like it's just a fantastic podcast and it seems like every one of her guests is somebody that I want to be friends with so I'm following a ton of new people on Twitter and I have a ton of new books to read and like people because a lot of them are writers too and um, it's just been such a great um such a great thing to listen to and it it came out I think it started in July and it's weekly and I only just now started listening to it it's been like in my feed but I haven't started yet and so I got to binge the first like several episodes so that was really great and now I'm all caught up sadly so now I have to wait once a week like everyone else but um (laughs) yeah it's really it's really great I love it and uh and it's yeah good um I this is not a new podcast necessarily, but if you guys have been listening to my recommendations before, I mentioned one called The Black Tapes, mm-hmm. which finally has come back for season three. <laughs> like, I think it was like a year hiatus, so it's been a long time. I mean, I've given up hope on Limetown, but <laughs> The Black Tapes has come back. Um, so I was super excited and I started listening to that again. Um, I Game of Thrones had their season finale mm-hmm. for this year, and that was okay. I the thing is, it's they are finally moving plot stuff forward, which is good. But because of that, it starts to feel a lot like a conventional TV show mm. in a way that it didn't used to. Um, I used to be genuinely afraid people would die that I liked because that happens a lot in this series. But for, I felt like this season was a lot of maneuvering things into place for the final season. Mm-hmm. It was kind of eh. And all of the big quote twists that happened in this season, I, I saw coming because again, it's gotten very conventional in terms of writing. And also like, the writing hasn't just gotten conventional. It's not very good. Um, obviously, I still like it, and I'm still watching it, but they're, they're like... The way things played out at the very end, I was a little bit like... There was one that really bothered me, and this is kind of spoilery, so sorry, you guys. Gonna, it's going to spoil the end of the season, but there is a scene between Sansa and Arya at the very end... 
that felt cheap to me because we spend the past couple of episodes setting up this conflict and tension between the sisters for reasons. Mm. It's just reasons. They're, you know, and we think that, okay, maybe they'll turn against each other or whatever, but at the very end, it's it turns out that there's another reveal. Mm. And it wasn't that the characters were manipulated, it's that the viewers were. Because all of this needs, for this scene to have made sense at the end, they needed to have conversations that we were not privy to. So they, so the show was manipulating us and lying to us. As much as I got a lot of catharsis out of that moment, it still felt cheap. And it really, yeah. really bothered me. I was a little bit like, mm, okay. So that, that's annoying. Other off-menu recommendations. So I have an app on my phone called the Golden Thread Tarot. Mm, I saw you posting about that. I love this app, by the way. Um, you know, you can just, like, draw your daily card, and it will tell you what the meaning of the card is, and you can actually save it to a log, and then you can, like, basically ask what your, you know, you can log what your feelings are about said card, uh, whether positive or negative, what words you associated with it midwise, and it actually gives you a log of what your tarot has said for the month. Um, and I just use the daily, I just draw a daily card just to see yeah. what it is. Um, but there, you can actually have full on readings with a spread. You can ask it questions and it will answer, you know, you can draw cards that way. I've always been interested in tarot and I've always wanted to learn how to read tarot, but I've never really gotten around to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really like this app and the person who coded it and it's completely free. The person who coded it actually has a physical deck and it's beautiful, but they also have another app called the Labyrinthos Academy where they teach you how to read tarot. Oh yeah. And it's this like cute little app and you know, it, it asks you questions and it sort of, you know, it's like what card is associated with this? And then you just kind of pick and it's like almost like a game in some ways. Um, pretty well designed, and I think it's actually kind of fun. It's a little bit like Duolingo, if you guys have ever done yeah. Duolingo to learn another language. So it it's, it's kind of what I've been doing in my like downtime. If I'm like I don't know waiting in line at a grocery store or something, so I'll often kind of go through these lessons for the tarot. So um, it's called Labyrinthus Academy. The actual app that I use is called the Golden Thread Tarot. And the creator of that app also actually has a physical deck and it's beautiful and I'm like this close to actually purchasing it. Which one it's, is it? It's called Golden Thread Tarot. The Golden Thread? Yeah, it's it's like a black mat and Ooh. with gold on it. And it's in the and the lines are very simple and it's um and it's just really pretty and I was like, I'm this close to getting the physical deck as well, so I miss all my tarot stuff because when I used to be at Llewellyn we published tarot decks and we distributed Los Garabeo tarot decks which were also gorgeous and so I used to be surrounded by that all the time I, I also always meant to read learn how to read and never did um but I'm like oh I need to see what new decks are coming out like <laughs> I used to know because just like publishing there's like catalogs and decks and yeah, I would know yeah, all yeah. the new the new decks that were coming out from who and where and now I have no idea because I don't work there anymore funny 
So, yeah, no, I, I highly recommend it. It's very, it's just, it's nice. It's kind of meditative. Mm. I have been, I have been meditating. I don't think, I think I've mentioned this before, but I have been meditating. And I think it's actually really been helping me with revisions. It help, it helps me focus and it helps me put me into a mind space. And just drawing a tarot card is part of my daily meditation. Um, and I write it down in my journal and then I also write down like stream of consciousness nonsense where I'm trying to like wrangle all my revision thoughts down. Like that is the one thing when I'm revising, I need a journal. I Uh need something to talk to. Yeah. Cause I can't necessarily talk to people all the time and I don't even need the thing is when I'm talking to somebody, I don't actually need them to respond. I just need to talk at them. Yep. And if I don't have someone to talk at, I desperately need my journal to talk at because then I can just like write my nonsense thoughts down. Um, so that has been very helpful. Um, so yeah, those are my off menu recommendations for this week. That is all for this week. Next week we have an interview with Marie Lou so exciting i'm editing it right now um because i actually interviewed her when i went home uh to la last month so Mm -hmm. um i can't wait to listen to it yeah you guys are also gonna have to forgive the audio quality because she was actually a lot closer to the mic than i was so some of my questions might be a little bit like low in volume so uh but yeah i am editing that now so that will be next week And as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or my website, PenAndParsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, SJJones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, forthcoming November 7th. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or ask us via Twitter using the hashtag AskPubCrawl. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye!